0: And now, coming to you live from Arlington, Virginia, a mere day after the end of the 40th annual World Fantasy Convention, it's Jonathan Strahan and Gary K. Wolfe with the World Fantasy Award-winning author of River of Stars, Guy Gavriel K., CM, on the Coot Street Podcast!
1: That is your initiation, is to listen to his,
2: say, podcast. Um, I'm actually not going to compete with what Jonathan <laughs> just did,
0: vocally or otherwise. <laughs> I realize I might just have had my last dinner invitation <laughs> to <send you. laughs> Welcome. It's great to have you on the, on the podcast. Thank you for joining us.
2: It's good to be back. You realize that I am not yet gentlemanly and kind enough to forbear teasing you both um, <laughs> about the podcast that never was. Ah, yes. You remember I did a couple of days the ago. Po-
1: yes, you did. And I did
2: the reading that never was, Mm -hmm. and so we have a motif. Yes, we do. We are now doing the podcast that never was. Absolutely. And you can explain... The nefarious circumstances under which our brilliance, <laughs> oh, a few years ago, this flawless. Is flawless. We yes. were good, weren't we? <laughs> no, we were. Gary, were we? Finally, it was. We were brilliant. That's what I
0: understand it to be, yep, yes. and we're telling everyone now, so it will have been, legendary. Exactly. Absolutely, it possibly was the finest podcast we have done in more than two hundred episodes. That's what Gary yeah. Wolfenchunk. Exactly, keep telling me. We travelled into the <laughs> wilds of extra-urban Toronto or wherever it was. It was cold, it was icy, we sat in a hotel room, and we were brilliant. And you lost it. I was robbed by technology. Maybe my, false, my faulty understanding of the technology that we had, but it was technology, yes. I lost it mm-hmm. and several other podcasts at the same time, all of which were, if not quite as good as the heights that we reached, <laughs> still nonetheless well above average. You know, uh-huh. he's been saying that of not quite as good four or five different
2: I know.
1: <laughs> And we are rapidly in the process of making this one not quite as good. No, no, no. <laughs> so.
0: but, but we at least have journeyed through time. We're nearly two years later. I think when we met you in Toronto, River of Stars was just was just about to come out into the world. I think that's uh-huh. right. We
2: talked a lot about it. It's a new book, which we can't do anymore. It's a new book. No. No, but... but,
1: but well, um... But in a way, that gives us a perspective on it. Now you know how it's been received. Now you have... It may not be because of that one novel, but we should really begin by congratulating you on the Order of Canada, which is something that is, if I'm not mistaken, never happened to any fantasy writer.
2: I'm pretty sure that's right, because it hasn't happened to that many writers. The Order of Canada... I'm deeply honored. I mean, I, I, I can't even be witty and supercilious about this, because mm. it, it really it really was uh, an unexpected, and uh, there, there's one of those get the phone call moments where the mm. Governor General's calling you, and you think, my back taxes have come on, <laughs> exactly or right. something <laughs> like that. Uh, the, what happened in Canada is that in 1967, which was the 100th anniversary of the, of the nation, 1867 was when Canada was born. Mm-hmm. In 1967, they worked out the very big centennial celebrations, and someone in Ottawa came up with the, in fact, uh, I think, uh, well-thought-out notion that it was past time for our highest honours to not be given by the Queen in Westminster. That mm-hmm. makes sense. And Canadians since 67 cannot be knighted yeah. Except in a there's a there's, I believe I'm pretty sure there is a small subclause where the Queen can give an honorary knighthood to mm. someone, but you cannot formally be made a knight as a Canadian, even though we're still part of the the Commonwealth. Yes. So they in effect repatriated the highest civilian honors in Canada. They created the Order of Canada mm. in '67, and they substituted that. As a domestic equivalent, songs, mm-hmm. curtsying and bowing. Yes. Because we're Canadian, damn it. Well, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, obviously, this fit of well-intentioned and passionate nationalism denied you the opportunity to be Sir Guy. You
2: well, you know, the joke has been Sir Guy has been a, a trademark joke in name among among some of my friends since I was about twelve. <laughs> 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 so so some other some of them have joked that I finally came into the nickname, yeah, but we do not answer to sir Guy
1: <laughs> i think I think part of the honor is that um you you are now recognized as a Canadian writer uh, without any conditions applied to that, not a canadian fantasy writer there's There's always a kind of sense of pride in our tribe when someone is recognized without that modifier, you know, the best science fiction writer, the best fantasy writer, the best horror writer, uh, or an out, but an outstanding writer is something we all yearn for.
2: It's an interesting comment, Gary, because we're living through a time of, and I'm sure you've had other people discuss with, with this with you, the convergence of, of genres and labels and mainstream. Yes. From a variety of different sources and ways we have, genre writers achieving serious, critical, academic, commercial, mainstream credibility. And we have a great many so-called mainstream writers deploying as part of their arsenal genre tropes, motifs, themes, outright dystopic science fiction or elements of the fantastic. Mm -hmm. And that convergence, for me, is one of the happier aspects of an increasingly difficult literary world, that's one of the happy parts of what's going on now.
1: When you're, um, let's take uh, River of Stars for an example, it looked to me like the American trade paperback, which I I saw because of the Tribune, was not, it didn't look like a genre book at all. Uh, And you have the advantage of having a name that any genre reader will recognize, um, and you can also market the book to people who don't know who your name is. I mean, one, one example of somebody who's, who's very fortunate that way, I suppose, by getting on the booker list is Karen Joy Fowler. Uh, mm-hmm. Everybody who knows Karen Joy Fowler from reading her in this field is going to read her mainstream novel. Absolutely. And so she's got that audience already. But the other people, the number of people I've talked to in the literary world in Chicago who had never heard of this Karen Fowler before coming out of nowhere. Well,
2: now, know <laughs>
1: Exactly. By way of that book and that book
2: her nomination.
1: Exactly. And I'm assuming that's what's happened. I, I think probably, see if I'm right about this, more with Under Heaven and River of Stars than with most of your earlier books.
2: It's a progressive. It's been it's been evolving in that direction. The It's very complex, Gary, Jonathan, because publishing has, just as readers mm-hmm. are trained and emerging with an idea that you can read across labels and genres, and you can enjoy a mainstream writer working with uh, vampires, and you can enjoy a genre Mm -hmm. writer who writes well. The publishing imprints are thinking more and more about brand Uh and category, and certain markets, such as the German market, I'm always being told, want their writers to fall into a slot or a category. Mm -hmm. And so the the hybrid writers, the interstitial writers, to use how Ellen Kushner and Daniel Sherman like to describe it, the hybrid writers have the potential to shift and cross among a different uh, spectrum of readers. But the publishing imprints, the sales force, the marketing team, they have, the way I like to put it, they have their rogodexes. The marketing people for a genre imprint will have their go-to people they call when they have a new book out in their imprint. They will know to call Locus, uh-huh. F&SF. They will know the people they're it to. When they want to call Harper's or The Atlantic, mm-hmm. they may okay. not have a built-in relationship, easy access to the gatekeepers in those places. Blogs Are a different question. You can you can move across, but even there you'll often see bloggers posting in outrage,
0: Mm.
2: not mistakenly, that I am a blogger in science fiction and fantasy and horror. Why did I get a book on tying knots in nautical (laughs) seamanship? You know what imbecilic publishing marketing person sent me this book? And they will rant about how their brand <laughs> exactly. is not being respected yeah. by the publishers. So okay. it's a little bit, I think, of a still-finding-its-level process that on the one hand we have convergence and cross marketing, and on the other hand your imprint and your label can define how you're perceived. That if a book with a tour label or a rock label arrives – at Harper's in the Atlantic, it may or may not mm-hmm. emerge with a certain stigma as opposed to cachet because it will be seen as a genre book. So nope. I'm in flux with that mm-hmm. space because of the publishing end of it, not the reader end of it.
1: There, I think Jonathan and I can both attest that uh, the reverse happens as well. If a book wants, if, if, if a Harper Collins or a Moral wants to market a book as a mainstream novel, Locals frequently will not see a review copy of it, even if it's clearly a science fiction or fantasy book. Because exactly. They, there's almost, I haven't been told this, but I've been told almost indirectly, that they don't even want reviews
2: in, in genre magazines. Yeah, uh, sometimes they things. don't, because there will be writers, very well-known writers, who resist the possible label of science hmm. fiction. That the idea that they still feel or fear, they'll say it's a speculative fiction novel with an invented, Gary and I, we yes, discussed this. Writes, yes. They will introduce a definition of their own to avoid being called a science fiction book or science fiction writer.
1: Yes, and as a matter of fact, speculative fiction for a while was that code word. Uh, and it's still a code word among college English departments yes. and MFA programs, because if you're... This has happened in my own university. Uh, For a a year, we had um, a a science fiction writer. She clearly thought of herself as a science fiction writer. No one in the English department could bring
2: themselves to say science fiction. They could only say speculative fiction. Do you think fantasy, the equivalent of fantasy, would be people who would say things like the fantastic? Or, or it f- used to be magic realism, or fantastic.
1: Fantastic. Yes. Well, that's yes. fantastic
2: cover. Well, yeah. well, that's a very specific thing mm. because that's Clute. Yes, yes. John Clute working
0: his range widening term. Do you think if your career had started with Tagana, rather than Fionavar, you would have been seen as a fantasy writer? It's a very good question, and I cannot answer it. What I can tell you
2: is that. I believe that John Crowley is an example. Would have had a significantly different response to Little Big mm-hmm. when it came out, which was a brilliant, monumental Absolutely. novel, and it was defined as a fantasy genre book because its earlier books, had mm-hmm. Vanessa. Ends In Vanessa,
1: the Summer, and uh,
2: yes, yeah. and he was narrowed. In the eyes, this is a while back, so yeah. but that's paralleling my own, it's a little wow. bit earlier. He was narrowed in the eyes of the gatekeepers of the literary world. Little Big did not make the splash it could have, and a book that came out right around the same time, which was Winter's Tale.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: <clears throat> Winter's Tale. Mark Helpin. Yes, yeah. and Helpin's Winter's Tale. Helpin became a controversial figure later for his politics yes. among the genre, but back then it was simply a youngish writer doing a big book but coming from a literary framework and a more literary framework than Crowley, who had done Mm F.M. books. And Helpen had a significantly bigger initial splash than Crowley did in commercial and critical terms outside the genre. And so I think that there is a component, the line I've always used, is that in literature, origin is destiny. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can overcome it, mm-hmm. you can evolve out of it. Karen Joy Fowler is something of an example. But the way you enter the consciousness of the market can for a long time mm-hmm. be where you stay in the consciousness. I have um,
1: a more recent and tragic example is probably Graham Joyce. Uh, the Tooth Fairy, That's very tragic. The Tooth Fairy was um, received as a horror novel uh, and then he wrote a series of increasingly brilliant novels, which were which made him a literary figure in the UK. But um, when the uh, his most recent novel, Year of the Ladybird, was repackaged in the United States, and, he, Doubleday was the first uh, first time had been published with Doubleday, and they retitled it The Ghost in the Electric Blue Suit or something like this. And I got a whole series of emails from some young publicist. Saying we've discovered this great new author you've never heard of, and it was oh my. clear it was clear that they were positioning him as a brand new author, and and I I kept emailing this young man back and he he'll never listen to this podcast, so, um and saying no I know who he is and, and I had, no I actually read this novel last year when it came out in the UK, he he would have none of it he was saying no this is a brand new writer you've never heard of
2: they were trying to set him up that way exactly yeah. they were trying to repackage yeah. him as a kind of as a kind of magic realism which... You know what, though, guys? You have to sympathize with them in the sense that one of the biggest changes in the industry, in the book industry since I began, mm-hmm. and in the Dark Ages, is that it is easier to break out a first novelist than a fourth novelist. Mm. Yes, it never used true. to yeah. be so. The trajectory used to be that you did book one and two and three, you mm-hmm. would try to see certain levels of Increase in sales, and then the powers that be in the smoke filled rooms and the publishing house would say, Book four is really good, and we've established a certain baseline, right? And we will pump more money and more marketing effort in, we will tour her with this new one, and we will break out the fourth book. Today, it is significantly easier to do that with the first novel than it is with the fourth or fifth because Amazon and other markers and indicia of how well you're doing Mm -hmm. do not exist. So someone who's had those three books out, anybody can look and see that, uh, you know, they didn't do that many books. They didn't sell that many. And the pre-orders from Barnes & Noble, from Amazon, from Waterstones in the UK, from Indigo in Canada, will be predicated, whatever the publisher says they're going to do, on where those first three books were. Yeah. which is why you'll sometimes see what we talked about a few minutes ago another name yes another title for the book or this this desperate publicist that you were dealing with so, no you've never heard of it you just think you've heard of it <laughs> it is interesting when
1: you talk about the the, the the historical romantic idea of publishing the alfred A. knopf where we are going to develop this writer we're yeah. going to make this writer better And that seems to have gone out of the vocabulary because it's no longer developing a writer as a better writer
2: over four or five novels, it's developing a writer's sales figures as increasing over four or five novels. It's also part of why so much part of why so much desperation accrues Mm. to the younger writers I talk to, like in a place like this, a conference like this where we've been together for four or five days. The pressure on first, second novelist, the young ones, mm. is so intense for many, many reasons, but one of them is the feeling that they have become their own marketing directors, Yeah, that they are yes. responsible for whatever marketing, publicity, energy is going to accrue to their book, and it's going to be social media for the most mm-hmm. part, or many of them will do with amazing, amazing energy and fortitude, uh, book club circuits. I know writers who will do Mm. and have done a hundred nights a year of book clubs clubs. within a 50-mile radius Mm. of where they live, that they will basically go anywhere within 50 miles as long as, and it varies with the writer, they're guaranteed that there will be at least 15, at least 25. Sometimes book clubs are expected to consolidate, to put two clubs Aww. together, and these writers will be there. And they are acting on the assumption that if they sell 20 books to a book club, and they go there, and they're personable, that the next book will have seeded mm-hmm. that many copies, and you get your word-of-mouth ripple effect. So they are investing social media time, real-life time, an enormous psychic energy that has to be taken away from the exceptionally difficult process of writing a, a book. writing a book. <laughs> I don't know. You're probably
1: far too well
2: established to get
1: this kind of advice, but I've talked to any number of new writers, first novelists, who uh, may not be socially media savvy, but they're told by, uh, by their agent, by their editor, what are your platforms? Yeah. And you have mm-hmm. to have platforms. Now, one, one person I was talking I can't remember who it was, but it was not a young writer. It was somebody in their 40s with a first novel. Said, basically, they were told, you, we won't publish you unless we know what your platforms are.
2: Absolutely right. I had a conversation at World Fantasy in San Jose a few years mm-hmm. back with a, a very obeying, suave UK agent. And you guys can sit here and immediately start filtering <laughs> down to <laughs> yes, who that has right. to be. <laughs> And he told me, this a number of years ago, that if he started reading a manuscript, this is an agent, not a publisher, Mm -hmm. he received a manuscript from a young writer and he started reading it and he said he'd read a chapter or two and if it wasn't good, it was discarded. If it's not Mm -hmm. good, it's not good for him. He told me, if it's good, I still stop after two chapters. I put it down and I go to my laptop and I Google them. And he said, I want to see their presence, their platform, and I am making the sign against evil when I'm reaching for (laughs) garlic and crucifixes and stakes. And he's laughing at me and he lifts his snifter of brandy or whatever and he says, oh, guy, guy, guy. (laughs) He says, don't you understand? He says, I need to know how much they will help me sell their book. And I said, their job is to write the book and to write the next book and to make them as good as they can. Your job and the publisher's job is to do that marketing side. And he drank again and said, guy, guy, guy. You know, I would enter the movie and in geriatric in assuming that a writer's job is to write. If I am guessing who that was, and we can talk about that afterwards. This is <laughs> That's also... not fair, is it? You're teasing <laughs> me.
1: <laughs> but if, 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 I, if I'm right, this is also somebody who in previous years would have finished the manuscript, would have helped develop the writing.
2: Everyone would have in previous years. Mm -hmm. All of the agents would have in Mm -hmm. previous years. If you go back far enough, a manuscript submitted to a major publishing house where an editor read it and thought, this is pretty good Mm -hmm. and if I put a little time in on it, I can make it quite good and we'll go with it. Mm -hmm. Today, it's far more likely, almost a certainty, that that editor will say, this is pretty good Mm -hmm. to the agent. Find the author a freelance editor. Mm. Have them work on it and come back to me. And here are a few quick notes on what I would like Mm -hmm. to see done to it. And if they come back to me, I'll read it with pleasure. So they're turning it back to the writer to pay for a freelance editor in the hope that that editor's world view on literature synchronizes with uh-huh. the acquiring editors and then come back in a year having done the work. Mm-hmm. It's, and you sympathize with the editors. They've been downsized. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. The pressure on them to not make bad acquisitions in an increasingly bottom-line focused publishing world is right. extreme. Everybody, it's not just the writers feeling the pressure, it's on the other oh, side. Oh, yes. Everybody is squeezed in this way in the business. Well being a very business-oriented conversation. Oh, well, conversation, we'll wait for a
0: minute, but having well, established your own career 30 years ago, and if I'm right, this is the <laughs> 30th anniversary year of your career, um, has the expectation for you to do things post-publication you know, publication of the book changed dramatically and expanded? That's another good question.
2: Uh, for early in the morning, you're doing really well. <laughs> <laughs> the... Uh, Short answer, yes and no, which is to say that I don't feel by now, I feel deeply fortunate that I have established myself Mm. internationally at a level where I don't feel the anxiety that a younger writer looking to establish some name recognition will feel. So I don't feel that kind of pressure. I did have, and it's too long a story for the podcast, but I had a lunch, the short, short version, when River of Stars came out, mm. just before it came out, with the vice president of marketing and the senior marketing director at Penguin Canada, where, where I live in Toronto, yes. they, were, they were there. And I know that the New Yorkers were cheering them on in, in some distance. Mm. And they took me for lunch. And if you know tag team wrestling, where one must <laughs> slash yes. the other when they get tired of yes and I sat across the table from the two of them and they took turns eating and browbeating. Mm -hmm. You know, eat, browbeat Um, um. in tandem. And they basically said, you must be on Twitter. You Mm -hmm. must be on Twitter before River of Stars comes out because we have things we want to do and they involve your being present to some degree. I'm not on Facebook. Mm -hmm. I, I made an executive decision as it was. To, I took a meeting with myself, and the majority vote. Right, <laughs> uh, I have a Twitter page, a Facebook page that's run for me, which is basically conveying information, yes. you know, new reviews, yes. new covers, things like that. But I do not engage on Facebook, and I wasn't on Twitter until that meeting. And they were—I would like to say persuasive, but what they really were was ruthless in making clear that so much of the process today of marketing a book took place in social media, that it was really important to them and they made a substantial investment Mm in me. And then you get, if you want to ask what changes. Mm -hmm. One of the things that changes if you're lucky enough to be building your career to a certain level, is that you feel a certain responsibility to your publishers Mm -hmm. who are investing significantly in you and resources from the publishers. I'm lucky enough to have resources coming from the publishers. And I'm too Canadian to say, you know, good luck to you. Report back as to how well you do. (laughs) I'll say, in effect, like a good soldier, yes, I'll step in to a degree. There are things I won't and don't do. But I did step into Twitter, and to my shock and horror, I found that I was hanging out with... uh, Shocking people like Gary Wolf and Jonathan Strawn, and enjoying myself. I'm destroying my curmudgeon reputation by actually oh. using words like enjoying myself. But I did. So it hasn't actually felt burdensome. Uh, what I find burdensome, I don't know if you guys have thoughts on this, I cannot tweet relentlessly about my books. No. I feel, I feel. Tacky, graceless, ghastly, if Mm -hmm. I were to simply go over and over that way. I discovered uh, somebody steered me to something called, I think it's Twitter metrics or something like that. There is something like that. Yeah, there's something like that. Twitter analytics. Twitter analytics, where you can see the breakdown of the interests of your followers is one of the things that shows you. Mm -hmm. So this may sound perverse, but I was truly pleased to discover that 48% of the people who follow me, their interest is social and political commentary. Mm -hmm. Now, my publishers might be less pleased by that. I don't think so, because that's part of what Gary was talking about a few moments ago about broadening the awareness of who you are and who might reach it. But I was really happy, because it tells me that I've been able to widen what I talk about because it's what interests me. I want to talk about Ukraine and Putin. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about these things, not just uh, got a great review for Under Heaven from some blog. I will do that at this stage, and I've increasingly begun to accept the protocol of retweeting because you're helping Mm -hmm. others. If If somebody does a good review on a blog... The dynamic of the social media world is that if I retweet them to my larger number of yes. followers, I am doing a favor. It's a signal yes. boost. Yes. That's yes. right. It's a signal boost. It's exactly what it is. And I've begun belatedly to be aware of some mandate to do that, to signal boost readers who are intelligent and generous about your books. I had always felt that it was self-indulgent, that well, I am over <laughs> myself, and the interpretation that's coming at me it's just signal boosting somewhere else.
1: I think that may be partly Canadian and it may be partly you. <laughs> maybe me, maybe generational.
0: But, but is there ever a feeling, though? I mean, you're right. But is there a feeling that there was a day two years ago, two and a half years ago, where you'd completed River of Stars, you had a manuscript, you'd given it to the publisher, they'd said, this is great, and you could have gone off, had a vacation, and started work on the new book, and not had I don't know how long... you know, consumed in promoting and marketing. I mean, it really does get in the way of the business, well, the ability to to write. There's no
2: question, but that's not new. No. It was always the case for me that I was aware that when I finished a book, well, you never finish it until the galleys are down, well, yeah. of course. You finish the book five or six times, like the ending of The Lord of the Rings in Jackson's movie.
0: Yeah,
2: You know, you have five or six endings. <laughs> right. And the finishing of a book has many different stages. The marketing phase, if you're lucky enough to have one. Mm. Uh, every writer needs to be careful when they complain about <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I've been saying I had this conversation with Garth Nixon, and he agreed completely. My my joke has been that the only people who complain more than a writer on a book tour are
1: the
2: writers who aren't on a book I tour. Book tour. Yeah. And Garth and I were agreeing completely uh-huh. because he's just coming off the road. He's been traveling for a long yeah. time for mm-hmm. his newest book. He's here. We were talking about it over too much single malt, and the reality is that this is part of. The business, if you're lucky enough for it to be part of the business, you can complain about that. So I processed a long time ago that it's a reflection of good fortune.
0: Mm, it is. If you well, have
2: that segment after a book comes out, well, you will be promoting it in a variety of yeah. venues. Yes, it slows you down. Paradox. It's not a paradox. Interestingly, maybe for me, I can't start a new book right after finishing one. Mm. We may have talked about this in the podcast. It never was. Uh, because I don't, I'm not doing multi-volume sagas, because I Mm. shift to a different part of the forest from one book to the next, Mm. I actually like the three, five, six months that may follow finishing one when I'm wrapping up the technical details and then marketing it, because it gives me a follow time. Mm. It gives me a chance to let the last book recede and fade. And that's not mm-hmm. just the setting, but it's the, it's the diction and the language. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. uh, I've said this, I've talked about this in one of my panels. Last Light of the Sun, which is my Viking, Anglo-Saxon, Celtic book, is written in a dramatically different way from Lines of Awasan or Tigana, mm-hmm. because the settings require, for me, a language awareness that the same tone, the same style of writing will not suit two books in such dramatically different cultures. When I went to do mm-hmm. the two Kitai books, yeah. Under Heaven and River of Stars, some readers found them too quiet for them in language. Mm-hmm. Mm. And that more reflective tone of language, for me, emerged from reading in the original sources, from reading the poetry, from reading some of the prose from the periods I'm working with, there's a different tone to Song Dynasty China writing than there is to the Icelandic sagas. Mm -hmm. And so, for me, if I'm going to try to, by osmosis, gain some of that tone in the writing and be aware that I want to do that, having some time, to let the last book recede has actually become a part of my method. Yeah. So the marketing period is not a negative for me to answer yeah, your question. Sure, yeah. It's
0: actually what I do during that time yeah. when I need the last one to pay it. So how long, you know, judging from River of Stars, did it take you to find the next book, the book I assume you're working on at the moment, oh yeah. and to begin to immerse yourself in that? It... It's twofold.
2: One is what we've just talked about, which is part of what I'm doing before I'm immersing anywhere else, is emerging yes. from where I was ah. before. Yeah. And then the sorted out research phase for most of the books now has been about a year. Yeah. Uh, I'm one of those writers for whom the research is a joy and a delight.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, I suffer badly from, what, from what's been called grad student syndrome, <laughs> which is the notion that before you start to write your dissertation as a graduate student, mm-hmm. there's always one more article, one more mm-hmm. footnote, one more correspondence to engage in before you begin. It's a delaying tactic, of course. Oh, yes. There are 18,000 delaying tactics. That's one of them. But I love it. Guys, it, it's such a pleasure for me to be corresponding with academics, to be digging into mm-hmm. information, and I can rationalize it. it's not Rationalization implies something vaguely about it. It is a genuine process for me to be steeping myself more deeply. You get to a point where you realize that a book has to come out of this so you've been wasting your time, <laughs> yeah. and then I start writing. And yeah. Generally, it's been about a year of full time Yes, research and correspondence communication with people who've spent their lives working in that field, and that's about what happened with this when it was about a year before I started I'd been reading and I was working, and sure. I'd used very old fashioned notebooks, which are increasingly inefficient because i it's such a long period, I end up making notes of notes mm-hmm. but periodically uh-huh. I have to go back to my notebooks. I do a greatest hits. That's what I do. I do a greatest hits of my notes for myself, all longhand, because I have to remember that a year ago, when I'm older, guys, your memory is not flawlessly retentive at this point, that I have to go back and say, damn it, that was a good point, but it was 10 months ago. I have to write Mm -hmm. it down again. So the greatest hits, and in the last couple of books, I actually had two sessions of greatest hits, because once I started writing the novels, Mm. I'm halfway through. I will usually break in each book about halfway, take a pause, go back again through all my notes, which are now two years ago, and do a greatest hits of the greatest hits to remind myself of what two years before I really wanted to work into the book. Mm -hmm. Then I go back to the very beginning. That'll usually be at about 90, 100,000 words written. And I'll go back to the very beginning of the book at that stage. And work up to where I am layering in my refreshed memory of some themes motifs um, ideas that I had wanted to bring in and I'll do the whole thing again when the book is done
1: it's one reason of slow. yeah well, speaking of that hypothetical graduate student starting on a dissertation somebody is going to love getting a hold of your notebooks at some university and I assume you're donating, donating your
2: don't assume uh, this is a vexing question for me Gary mm-hmm. and I'm i am It's very complex to me. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote, uh, quoting uh, another scholar, Dasent was his name, Mm -hmm. said that we must be satisfied with the soup that is set before us and not desire to see the bones of the ox out of which it has been made. Now. Academics will assemble around me with knives, like the, <laughs> the assassins around me exactly Caesar, right. and say that is heretical and disgraceful, and you must be purged of such a thought. But I admit that part of me has a feeling that what matters is the finished work. I know this is heretical because careers are made out of looking at the bedrock. Hmm. From which the finished work emerged, but I'm still ambivalent. I've given some papers mm-hmm. to this point, but they've been the most the the, the 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 top layer of what's done They're mostly various editions of the books, They must be marked up uh arcs of the books, mm. marked up uh manuscripts of the books with the copy editors notes and so right. forth. I haven't given away at this point any of those. Multiply handwritten notebooks of the, of the novels. And I confess, and I don't want to be assailed for this, but I confess that at times I wonder if I want to. Yeah.
1: Well, you were, you actually have been on the other end. You've been on the academic end of this as well. And, uh, and in fact, we're closely involved in what is probably the most famous literary exhumation in fantasy, which was working with Christopher yep. Tolkien on the Silmarillion. Kind
2: of, that's my thinking here. Mm -hmm. It's an awareness of what happened and is continuing to happen with materials that Tolkien left. Mm -hmm. And I don't talk about this a lot. I'm not going to now. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't discuss the Silmarillion as a process and the decisions made subsequently. I Mm -hmm. don't think it's proper for me to hold forth on this. But that quote I gave you Mm -hmm. is important to me that that quote from Tolkien about being satisfied with the soup that is set before you, the finished work that the author wanted mm-hmm. yeah. in front of your eyes, wanted the world to see. That's something I think about a lot as I get older, is that it is, to my mind at least, a possible approach. It's a not-academic friendly in one sense. It's completely friendly to the academics who want to do close reading of the works of X or Y. You pick up a book, or a book of short stories, and you read it thoughtfully and closely, and you put it in the context of the other work by Mm -hmm. the same writer. You can do volumes on that with certain writers. You know that. Yes. Yes. The other strand will be to exhume the childhood juvenilia and do something that suggests that this mm. theme that emerged when so-and-so was 15 finds culmination in some paragraph they wrote when they were 52. That's another direction for academic and queen, and it's a valid one. But I'm not sure, as I'm sitting here, mm-hmm. that I feel a compulsion to uh, empower mm. that strand with the release of all the material. It's, it's, it's a challenge. One of the things that complicates it, I'll be very frank, one of the things that complicates it is that there's an economic incentive to do this. Yeah. There is. Absolutely. Your papers can be bought, hmm. or at the very least you can be given a significant tax deduction right. for donating papers to an academic institute. There's an economic reason oh, yeah. to, to give away all of your papers to the right kind of place, and you get invitations and requests because people want them. It's, it's funny you should have asked that because I'm dealing with this
1: now. Well, there, oh. let me defend academics for a minute, not having done much of this sort of thing. One, one is uh, the intention of the author is ought to be supreme unless you're Kafka because we wouldn't have Kafka if somebody hadn't exhumed things. The other thing is that you, at, at, at your level of... Uh, authority within the publishing industry pretty much determine what the final book looks like. That has not always been the case. And going back and looking at Melville's books, which were edited with, in many cases mercilessly without his consent, uh, and finding out what he really wanted uh, or intended uh, can, in some cases, re- reveal a better book than we thought it was, or a more interesting book, or a more complicated one. Now, the other side of that, and this is a famous story you might uh, no, I think it was an American literary scholar named F.O. Mathiason, who had written a long uh, passage in a book on Melville about um, about the idea of original sin. And there was a phrase in Moby Dick, uh, even the soiled fish of the sea, and, and Mathiason went on for a paragraph about the, the the original sin of man was so monumental and universal that even the fish Have been soiled by this. Okay. He was using the first edition called The Whale, the British first edition, which was the first edition of Moby Dick, and somebody pointed out that that was a misprint for the coiled fish of the sea. Oh, wow.
2: (laughs) an entire (laughs)
0: thesis, based
2: on a typo. Exactly. (laughs) Wow. Wow. There is that, of course. Exactly. One of the things that, uh, that's germane to this, because I was just talking to a writer about this, a young writer. Uh, My, and this is just about me, this is idiosyncratic, it's not prescriptive. My final published books always shrink. You may raise your eyebrows at me. Forty pages on line edits. Just blue penciling. They're, they will be a 620-page book, and they end up as a 570 or 80-page book. Because my last pass-through is a obsessive-compulsive line-editing process. Literally, just single words, short phrases. And the book can shrink 5 to 8% just on that. Mm-hmm. And I can talk about this to younger writers, about the need to be hard on yourself the mm. need to look. I'm not a minimalist writer. I can enjoy them. I can respect mm. somebody who writes in a, a Raymond Carver minimalist way. It's not my bent as a writer, but I do pull back. The last, last stage is always mm. pulling back and shortening. Oh. And as I talk to writers about this, I sometimes think I could make this point better if I let someone see the next-to-last draft and what I've done with the red pen mm-hmm. to hand over to the type centers. And then I get into a different mindset and say, is it my job, my task in life at this stage, to be a pedagogue for younger yeah. writers? Right. My task is to write the best books I can. There's a little bit of a pay-it-forward, give-it-back sense as we get older that you want to share what you know, but I am again, this is a recurring motif here, I'm Canadian. I don't actually love the notion, and I see it everywhere now, of the writer holding forth as instructional sage.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I have a resistance, and I, it's ubiquitous, it, it's a money-making process,
1: sure. it's oh, a way yeah.
2: that people I know and care for deeply can make a living is because they're doing workshops and seminars and retreats and so forth. And I have a resistance to it because there is a hierarchy established of the one who knows how it's done and the one's kneeling at his or her feet to learn how it's done. And I resist this because it is so damnably personal. Yeah, It is so idiosyncratic.
1: I, I've had conversations with students and teachers at the Clarion workshops, for example, where this issue always comes up, and, uh, and it's, it's come up on this podcast. And the, author, the kind of authors I'm going to talk about, we've never had on the podcast. We only have wonderful people. <laughs> um, I made the cut. You made the cut, absolutely. But, there, but I, I've heard of, of students going to a Clarion or another workshop, and there are some, most writers actually, are very sensitive to what the student is trying to do. The writers you're talking about who hold forth usually can only hold forth on what they write, and they're
2: only useful to students who want to
1: write what they're
2: writing. Except that, given that the meme of the top 10 something or other has come to dominate our culture, Mm -hmm. how many times do you see so-and-so's 10 tips for better writing well, yeah. solves 12 suggestions. I hate those guys. I'll give you my favorite example about this is that The Guardian, I'm going to say now, it's about two and a half years ago, oh. The Guardian newspaper in the UK, you can find this online, published, and I think it was in two installments, they had so many of them, tips from established writers on how mm-hmm. to write. And my recollection, very vivid, is that one set, sa- and they didn't get these commissions. Some of them were done for them. Most of them, they mm. just pulled them. The writers right, yeah. had posted them. Right. And Margaret Atwood, superb writer, Margaret Atwood's tip number four, I'll say randomly, was buy a thesaurus and keep it right beside your keyboard at all times. That was mm. one of Atwood's tips for writing. Now, I sometimes tell the story because I'm hyper exaggerated point, the very next writer with Elmore Leonard in their list. And he probably (laughs) wasn't. He might have been too down. I knew (laughs) Elmore Leonard was going to come up Elmore Leonard said in one of his tips, buy a thesaurus, take it out to the garden shed, unlock the garden shed, throw the thesaurus into the back of the garden shed, lock the shed, and throw away the key. Now, we're laughing. It's funny, but Nobody else I saw commenting, reading those garden, those Guardian threads, oh. Garden and Guardian, uh, picked up on what seems so obvious to me, which is that whenever we hold forth and throw out our suggestions, what's going to happen is a variant of what you just said. Writers will grab the one that works. For them. Yeah, sure. We are the way we will lawyer shop or doctor shop. We will look right. for the person who's telling us mm-hmm. what we want to hear. The person who says, never outline. An outline will chain and constrain your vision and you will be locked uh-huh. into it and the work will suffer. And the person who says, always make an outline, because free form fiction will lose shape and architecture, and you need to have an overarching outline to Fear within, but you need that outline. A writer whose propensity as a creator is one or the other will grab the sage that says what they already want to hear. And I feel that way about the Mm -hmm. workshop model, even if you're sensitive to the student, disciple, whatever word you want, is that the listener is going to tend to pick what resonates for them already. Which is why I think something like Clarion is more successful than
1: most of them. Because you have six different instructors in six weeks or something, Mm -hmm. and students always find one. Yeah. Uh, And and, and in fact, students are sometimes terrified by the others to the extent that they think, I never want to write like that. Uh But a good example, in the fantasy world, and it's a story I've I've told before, but a, a couple of fantasy writers, Uh, of very different stripes, one very literary and one very commercial, were arguing over what we now call world building, which seems to be a word that never existed before the fantasy genre became commercial. And one was essentially saying, if you build your world intensely enough and with enough detail and with enough research, the characters in story will come. And the other person was saying, I don't understand what that means. If you have characters in a story, the world will come. (laughs) they were both right
2: yes Mm -hmm. they were
1: writing completely different kinds of fantasy
2: yeah and that part of my I mean we're we're, we're saying the same thing which may not be as exciting as when we disagree but we're saying (laughs) the same things here which is that for me the utterly personal nature of the creative process Mm -hmm. requires a degree of diffidence to anyone Mm. purporting to tell someone Mm -hmm. how to write it, it that the diffidence is eroding from the culture. We hold forth sometimes in 140 characters. We are enraged in the morning by something or other. And we feel the need to weigh in on the issue of the day. There is a, it's not just a matter of courtesy and respect, it's a matter of, for me, appropriate diffidence about someone else's way of thinking and doing something. Mm -hmm. And it's not modesty, I'm not a modest person, but I'm conscious of individuals other than myself who will achieve significant success in ways
0: that would not make any sense to me, as you just said. Isn't it also true though, that this is part of the writing industry where writers make their living by teaching wannabe writers? Of course it
2: is, mm. and it's part of what it's. Oh. It's what I just said—that I have very yeah. dear, good friends yeah. who are enabled to keep writing good books because they're doing these workshops and seminars and right. things like that. So it is part of the industry. The mm. if you go slightly differently towards a segment like people writing poetry.
0: Yeah. hmm
2: Poets write poetry now for other poets and make a living by becoming writers-in-residence or academics Mm -hmm. at a university, teaching other poets, it becomes, at its worst, it becomes incestuous, which is the risk of any subgroup. This genre can become incestuous Mm -hmm. if it's Mm -hmm. not careful. But something like poetry, there is no living to be made. No. As a poet. it's not there. It's not on the table. The novelist is seduced by the possibility that you can break out and not yes. in a rash. You can break out as a novelist with luck, fortune, and karma. Right. Your book can sell. You have the possibility of actually making some money by writing fiction. Sure. If you are a poet, that doesn't exist. It changes the parameter of the game. In Canada, you will survive on government grants, uh-huh. the Canada Council, here too, I think. No. Not at it, all. Maybe. So universities, universities, universities. The university. Universities, the university yeah, circuit they will be something. the way you go.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Or I guess if you're, this is a question, I'm asking this question because you're a Canadian and you know all other Canadians, of course. We all know that. <laughs> but I, there was a story. Years ago, that, uh, that I, I know Leonard Cohen had published a couple of volumes of pretty good poetry and real and had published a couple of novels, but he realized the only way he could get anybody to pay attention to his
2: poems were to write music and start becoming a singer. Yep. Yeah. And is that true that he really was a poet who he was a poet yeah. for sure? He published several volumes, he was known as a poet, he was a follower of Irving Layton, who at the mm-hmm. time was one of the two or three best known Canadian poets, and Layton. Was They were both Montrealers, like oh. with a mentor of sorts to Cohen, and he was known as a poet. I don't know, because I haven't read the biographies, and I didn't know either of them. They're way older than I am. Mm. <laughs> the, uh, uh, I don't know if it's true to say he became a songwriter to make a living because poetry wouldn't. He also wrote a novel, Beautiful Losers.
1: And uh, game,
2: I think he probably, I'm, I'm going to guess, he simply had those strings to his bow. Ah. He had songwriting in there. It's like Robert Graves is a better example to get out of Canada. Mm. Graves wrote his novels. Mm. Uh, Claudius, Claudius the God, Count Belisarius. Correct. And he was doing the literal potboiler thing. Yep. He wrote his novels fast in order to support himself to write poetry, and that was announced. There's no ambiguity about that. Robert Graves wrote his fiction in order to have enough money to put food on the table to write the poetry that he regarded as his important work. He never regarded his novels as important. It's one of the paradoxes. Graham Greene divided his novels into novels and entertainments, and frequently the entertainments are better as novels. Oh, this gun for hire is terrific yeah. compared yeah.
1: to... Actually, yeah. it's better than The Power and the Glory, you're right.
2: But that's a generation that had this mindset that this is unserious work. Uh-huh. Yeah. And Graves was that way too. My serious work is my poetry. My novels such as putting food on the table. I don't think Leonard Cohen would have said that. I think he uh-huh. would have said, my songs are serious work too. They're simply another thing I do. Another
1: this is probably folklore as well, but I'd heard about Ian Banks, uh, who clearly dis- distinguished between science fiction and mainstream fiction. Only, s- and somebody will correct me if I'm wrong, somebody told me that actually he was making more money on his mainstream fiction, was yeah. using his literary fiction to
2: subsidize his science fiction writing. That would be a really interesting paradox. I don't know. No, no, I I've heard that. that too I've too. heard that, yeah. You've heard the same thing? I've, I've heard well, that. that. You both
0: heard it, it must be true, obviously. <laughs> And I could believe it because the mainstream novels sold exceptionally well, particularly the, you know, the early ones. There is an obvious question to ask somewhere in here. We're two years out from River of Stars. There is a novel in progress. How long away do you think it is before it, it will emerge into the world?
2: I don't like talking about books in progress. This is becoming a theme of what I say about things. But uh, I... I don't like talking about them for a very specific reason. The more you talk about a book, yes. I don't even like nailing down my titles to it. <laughs> the more you talk about it, in my experience, the more the work coalesces and hardens around the way you describe it. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. And for me, because I don't outline, I have the broadest sense of where I'm going, I have a sense of a certain number of themes that that historical period offers me. But every book is organic for me, to use oh. a trendy word. I actually don't like it, but everyone knows what I mean, yeah. so no. I use it. Every book is evolving and shifting in progress. And if I leave it not articulated, as opposed to inarticulate, because I don't want <laughs> to be inarticulate, if I leave it without verbalizing it or discussing it too much, I leave it inchoate, in my own process, in my own sensibility. If I were to say the new book is about X and the themes are Y and Z, Um, I am hardening it around that sense of it. And I am making it more difficult, which is happening right now. I'm about 100,000 words into the new book. It's happening now that I have realized that a theme for this book that will be a significant one was not in my awareness when I started writing it. It has come into Mm -hmm. the book. And I know that when I go back and do, as I said a few moments ago, that first comprehensive halfway in the book, I'm a little past halfway now, that comprehensive first rewrite of the first portion of the book, I can work up that theme that I've discovered matters. It's there, and I can do more with it. I can seed it, is the word I use, Uh more effectively in the early going. And my feeling, knowing my own process, that's what I say all of this is just about how I write, not Uh how anyone else should. Uh My feeling is that by not discussing, I leave it fluid, amorphous, more readily evolving than if I discuss and describe too much. That that sense of hardening is the way I think of it. So it's in progress. I am not in China with this one, which is not mm. to say I won't be in China again. My my Chinese studies friends say that I have a hope mm. of not going back <laughs> at some point, because there, was a, there are things in there that really did work for me, but yeah. I didn't want to become... I have a desire to be a moving target. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, isn't necessarily a smart commercial desire? Well, certainly the idea of advanced marketing is is, is going to be
1: difficult. You sound, though, this is a, this is another term, and, and it, obviously when you say you're talking to writers, no two writers sound alike, but you sound like you're in dialogue with this book as it's working, that it's talking back to you in some way.
2: Always, always. And that's part of the not outlining thing that's my method. Yeah. Uh, and that's not even... Uh, a recent older writer thing. I was always like uh-huh. that in my creative process. The books were also, this is a segue for your question, but all of the books are in dialogue with each other quietly. Yeah. That uh, To pick an easy example, the, in Fionnabar, going way, way back, uh-huh. the, the idea I invented of the mage and his source, the idea that magic, power, drains someone else,
1: Mm-hmm. You
2: aren't drained, but someone else oh, right. is drained by your use of magic, which for me allowed me to play with all sorts of moral and ethical yes. implications of their that relationship. That was inverted in Tidana by the relationship of the Prince of Tidana and any wizard oh. he could bind. It is a hostile, predatory mm-hmm. coercive. You never yeah. thought about that one. I see Gary. No, I, 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 I never thought about that connection.
1: Kind of, yeah,
2: no. that, that was very, I was conscious that that's what I was doing. Uh-huh. I wanted to flip that bonding relationship and the application of magic into something that wasn't symbiotic and mm. a nurturing relationship into a coercive hostile one. I thought it would be interesting to do that. That's one example. I do that all mm. through books. That one theme in one book is flipped in a later book differently. Uh, River of Stars and Under Heaven are obviously in dialogue. Mm, That was very deliberate because the Song Dynasty of the 12th century Mm. had a very specific understanding of the Tong Dynasty, the the great, great, great superior dynasty. And that fascinated me because if there's an ongoing fascination I have, it's with memory, both cultural and personal, and how we understand the past, Mm. how the past doesn't go away in some instances, but also comes forward warped and distorted. The way we understand our history shifts by where we are now. The the banal example I always use in the United States is to say that when you and I, Gary, were growing up, uh, Columbus was taught in a particular triumphant narrative, the discovery of the new world, the heroic efforts. That is, in some jurisdictions, appropriately an anathematic yes way to understand the experience of Columbus discovering America. The understanding of a given time period of its own history is a function of the views of that time period. Mm. That fascinates me. That yeah. endlessly yeah. fascinates me. And River of Stars is very much about how my Kitai in that book understands Kitai 300 years earlier, earlier. and it is a destructive understanding of its own past. Mm. So those books are in obvious dialogue, because you don't have to read the one to read the other. But if you have, uh actually, if you want want to meet the way some people from a perspective could shift. My youngest brother is a psychoanalyst. Mm -hmm. Uh My youngest brother said that from a psychoanalytic point of view, it's better to read River of Stars first than Under Heaven because we understand the present and then we go digging into the past. Yeah, exactly. That's an interesting way of looking at it. That his psychoanalytic Uh idea is that it would work better to know the present and then go back and we unearth the past that allows us to have an understanding of the present. A historian would say you read the earlier period first and then we grow towards the present. Isn't that neat? But yes. depending on how yes. you want yeah. to be, I find that fascinating. And that's my kid brother, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm now on record. I've made a terrible mistake. I'm oh, <laughs> now on record as saying that I'm a smart kid
0: brother. That's a terrible that's thing to no, I would do that. <laughs> I blew it. You, you did. Uh, do you find yourself going back and looking at your own previous novels in that way often?
2: Almost never, Jonathan. I... Uh, I had a, an experience. I'll, 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 I'll give you guys something. The new book is uh, is working back with uh, the same core setting as several of the older ones. Mm-hmm. Much, much different period. Mm-hmm. Sure. But I needed to go back and reread two or three of the books in order to make notes mm-hmm. of what I had laid down as uh, world components, you know, mm-hmm. geographic, historical. Sure. I needed to make notes of what had been laid down way, way, way before the new book takes place. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time I had reread any of the books in forever. Mm-hmm. I, had, I do not go back and reread them.
0: What was the experience like?
2: Really strange, really strange. Uh, and depending on where I was... One of two things kicked in. Uh, blessedly, rarely, I wanted to take that red pen to <laughs> occasional passages and phrases, but I had started to do the red penciling pretty early, so that, that didn't come up a lot. What did come up, and this is a weird function of getting older, is an odd feeling of almost being intimidated by the earlier version of myself. Really? With some passages. I would say, damn, whoever wrote that knew what he was doing (laughs) and the sense way back when of some scenes and passages that gelled, that worked for me Mm -hmm. in the reread, that moved me in the reread Mm -hmm. and it's almost like a reader not the writer, I'm far enough removed from Mm -hmm. some of this that to read a scene that I wrote more than 20 years ago and it, it doesn't feel like I'm patting myself on the back. It feels like I'm almost damned. I'm going to have to work really hard now uh-huh. to do something that works as well as
0: I think that scene worked. It was a strange feeling, Jonathan. I can imagine. And also, did you detect like a, a sense of energy, maybe that you, that you don't feel now?
2: Somebody said yeah. that I, I, try, I just read this quote the other day. Somebody, uh, maybe in the Paris Review, was quoted as saying that I have less. Energy today that I did when I was younger and more understanding. Yeah
0: mm-hmm. There are
2: always trade-offs sure. of one sort or another some other writers will say I have less energy and more craft That there may be more craft right. the person talking about understanding meant understanding about people But as you get older you also have more understanding of your craft as as You've been doing something for a long period of time. There are trade-offs and processes that evolve. Our interests change. Of course.
1: Yeah. And uh, to some extent, I think, I don't know if this, uh, the, again, everything changes from one author to the next, but we were talking to, um, um, well, we did a live podcast with, with Caitlin Kerenen, who had written this wonderful novel, Drowning Girl. She'd been a successful, well, very good, very talented writer for a long time, but she had written one novel which, Seemed to take a weight off of her because she realized she could write something that complete. And, and instead of feeling like I have to top myself, her attitude was, now that I know I can do that. Oh, how interesting.
2: I don't think I have to do it every time out. But that suggests, if I'm going to guess from that conversation, mm-hmm. that suggests that Caitlin Kiernan feels that home base is short fiction. That she didn't have to do a novel again, if that's what you're No, said. she had done other novels. But the no, so she Which, didn't have to do that kind of novel or that strong novel. That what strong. Did she, that, that strong, strong novel. novel. It was. It was
1: like, and she's not the only author we're picking on. Her. I've talked to other people when they finally write a really brilliant novel, um, it's like they no longer have to write a really brilliant oh God, novel. God, I'm jealous of that, different. Gary.
0: I'm jealous well, of that. I do not have that. I'm not there. See, no. I actually wonder if the, if the truth of it is not that personal a novel, particularly if you're talking about The Drowning Girl. Well, that, yeah, that it could, it could that, be that could Then, be well. I mean, that was somewhere where she dredged herself up and put it on the page.
2: And I that don't right. have to
0: because, for me, one of the
2: corollaries of having a body of work, mm. and this is this, I won't say it weighs on me, because that sounds too ponderous, if I'm very aware of it,
1: uh-huh.
2: is that I'm always feeling that I'm competing with myself. Yeah. I'm always feeling, every book, a certain consciousness of readers who have been generous enough over the years to say that the books matter to them. Right. I've been lucky enough not to tell people say, I like your book, but that your book was transformative, it mattered, it changed my life, I moved, I got married, I did things mm. because the resonance of the books entered into me that strongly. And I feel by now a a strong sense, every book. It's not so simple to say I don't want to let people down. It's that I don't want to be less than I have been in Canada. Oh, I, I,
1: yeah, and I, I feel now I'm being unfair to, to, to Caitlin because I think Jonathan's probably John. right. It was that novel. And I guess, okay, let me, let me pick out a novel from your own oeuvre that... Uh, it seems to me that's a little off to the side of the historical, is, is, is Isabel. Yeah. And, and I love Isabel, and uh, a lot of people did, and probably a lot of people would like you to do more Um uh, but, but you did that, and you did that as well as anybody could do that. So
2: if I were you, I
1: wouldn't feel like I have to go back and revisit Isabel at all.
2: It's not a revisit question. What happened with Isabel? Isabel's often misunderstood, actually. Mm -hmm. That's a terrible thing for a writer to say about himself. But one of the things that I was doing with Isabel was seizing the chance when I realized it came about spontaneously because I went to France that year. I think we Uh talked about this in the Dead podcast. Uh That I went to France to write a book about China. Yeah. 2004, Uh my family went overseas and I went with a trunk full of books and I was going to write a Silk Road book. Mm -hmm. That was the original This is why I don't like to discuss them. It started out as a Silk Road book. Ah. It was going to be a journey from the West to the East. And I got back to Provence, where we'd lived several times. And I was hit, guys. I was clobbered by the intensity of the experience of Provence, where Mm -hmm. you can't go 10 steps without tripping over history. Mm -hmm. And Provence flooded back into me. It intensely, vividly. And then somewhere along the line i learned very early in the first couple of weeks i was talking with someone i learned the founding myth of the city of marseille which has mm-hmm. to do with greek mariners exactly as Isabel, uh-huh. coming to land on the shore and open a trading post and being at risk of being killed it's a captain john smith kind of story uh-huh. and instead of being killed they were welcomed by the Celtic tribe in the area, and the leader, this is the legend, and the leader of that mercantile troop married the princess, the chieftain's daughter. That was the founding myth of Marseille, and it started to give me a notion that I could do something I'd never been allowed to do in any of the earlier historical fantasies, which is comment on history from today uh-huh. Isabel inverts. Yes, it does. In all of the other books, I took contemporary readers back to Mm -hmm. that quarter turn to the fantastic version of a period of history. Mm -hmm. And in Isabel, I bring it forward in a specific part of the world and I get to talk about how history in certain places is infused in the Alan Garner has this theme in Mm -hmm. his earlier fiction. Alan Garner worked with uh, Cheshire in the way that the presence of the past in a given place is really intense and i got mm-hmm. to write about how the most beautiful parts of the world are often the ones that know the greatest violence because people want them mm-hmm. yeah i my, my my line back then on the book tour with that there are very few wars for antarctica <laughs> but really, you, know, so, yeah. you know it's an exaggerated observation but you keep the point it's that we have wars over places that are desirable so isabel allowed me to comment on, we've talking before about how the books are in dialogue. Right. Isabel's in dialogue with every one of the books that comes before it, working with historical periods. I don't feel a need to revisit any of them as such. No. I've never felt that. I've actually felt the opposite, which is that I want to be a moving target. I want to visit oh. other spaces and take... Myself, I, want, I started to say take the readers, I would rather take myself, it's more selfish. I would rather stretch myself by looking at something different and learning mm-hmm. what comes to me from that, and then share what emerges from that. So the moving target thing isn't, uh, my work there is done, I don't have to go in. Oh, yeah. It's more that I'll grow more if I move somewhere else.
0: Mm. well <clears throat> with that we probably are getting towards the end of our po- uh, the time we would normally really? talk to the podcast yes we are we, and I don't doubt that you have somewhere that you need to be to get on with your day so I'd like to thank you very much for being willing to exhume the past from two years ago and recreate the podcast for us it's been a very great pleasure oh it's a terrific pleasure to talk as you guys and I hope that in a year or two, we will touch base at to a future world fantasy and talk about whatever it is is in play at the moment.
2: I hope we do that too. I hope that this one survives, transferred back <laughs> to Australia, and various technical
0: glitches, and we exist. We will, we will exist. And until then, thank you very much, Kai Gabriel Kay. Thank you. And no, I no, will talk to you next week, Anna. That would be the plan.